Well, it's a great pleasure to, to be able to address you. And uh, as you've heard, humanities is uh, traditionally seen as Oxford's uh, great strong point, not that it doesn't have many, many other strong points. And so I suppose I'm here to, to try and defend that, and I hope I can do that. Um, my current research project is basically uh, into what you might call un-British India. Uh, I'm basically interested in looking into what was going on in India, what was happening in India, and those parts of it which were not directly controlled by the British after the 18th century. So I'm really interested in India of the princes, the Maharajas, uh, from the late Mughal period, and probably controversially for you, up until the present. Um, but I'm interested in what I would call the political culture of kingship, not just in what kings and their advisers do, but how they project their authority, how they're seen by others, and how they fit into the broader context of Indian politics, society, and culture. But rather than just talk about uh, the, the, the distant past, fascinating though I find that, uh, I, I thought you would probably find it more interesting if I talked about how we might be able to find some useful applications uh, in, 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 in studying things like kingship in India over the, a long period to contemporary history and politics. And what I'd like to suggest is that if one looks at contemporary political leadership, particularly in India, and also at styles of democracy, what I think we find is that a very rich repertoire of historical kingly symbolism is often being employed. So what I'm trying to suggest, I suppose, more broadly, is that there is great relevance for humanities scholarship and an approach to Indian politics which takes its history and its culture, which we've heard from Professor Guhar is so rich, very, very seriously indeed. Okay, let's start then. I've got two images here. Uh, I'm sure some of you will recognise them. We have Mr Advani, the sometime leader of the BJP and also sometime Deputy Prime Minister, and we have... King Ram, famous mythical king. Uh, next. Next. Uh, we have another BJP leader. Here we have Narendra Modi uh, in interesting headgear. Uh, and here we have a statue of the great Maharashtrian king Shivaji in, yes, you have to admit, looks suspiciously similar headgear. Okay, so we have these, these cases in front of us. Now, before I go on, I would like to say that I am by no means suggesting that Indian politics is in any way unusual in being influenced by past ideas of leadership. And indeed, I would say that all modern democracies, politicians draw on uh, older, ancien regime, aristocratic forms of, of political authority and ideas. Uh, poor old France has become a bit of a whipping boy, I think, here today. But I mean, anybody who thinks of recent French, pre recent French presidents, Mitterrand, Girac, uh, Sarkozy, couldn't help but be struck by uh, similarities to, 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 to uh, French monarchical and Napoleonic politics. And certainly, obviously, speaking uh, from Britain, it would be very odd to assert that India was in some way peculiarly addicted to monarchical uh, uh, show and flim-flam. So, so I'm not suggesting that India is, is in any way peculiarly uh, traditionalist or monarchical. But I do think that an analysis of kingly traditions and their traces in modern politics can tell us something not just about the style, but I also suggest about the substance of Indian politics. 
Now, until quite recently, it hasn't been at all fashionable to study India's kings and maharajas since the, the late Mughal period. Uh, and that, I think, is because, uh, on the one hand, they have attracted a sort of puritanical disdain, uh, or because they've been seen as essentially joke figures, you know, puppet kings uh, being manipulated by the British. And certainly uh, here we have uh, the Maharaja of Narva with Lord Curzon, who's been mentioned earlier. I think Curzon probably certainly did have that view of kings. And also the view of the extreme self-indulgence that, that these Maharajas simply moulded away in Ruritanian palaces with nothing but vast collections of Rolls Royces to keep them company, but has something to it. And here we have the Maharaja of Narva's very, very famous roller, which has been converted to look like a swan, or as Nehru thought, a goose. Uh, and very sadly, that, I'm afraid, is now in a museum in Amsterdam and not in India where it should be. But anyway, to, to carry on, what, I'm, what I, I think is that, and what many scholars, I think, now agree, is that India's kingly tradition survived the assault of, of the British Raj and British imperialism. However, what I do think is that when one looks at kingship in India over a long period, what one sees is, is that it isn't one thing. There are many different styles of kingship and kingly ideology and conceptions of kingship. What I'd like to suggest is that there are broadly three. They sort of boil down to three. Uh, and I've got some, some illustrations here of, of what I, 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 I think I mean. The first kind of kingship, and I'm sure Indians here will immediately recognize this, which one sees from, from ancient times all the way through, is the warrior king. And to illustrate this, I've chosen this unfortunately slightly blurry picture of uh, Rana Pratap, uh, one of the, the great 16th century kings of Mewar, Udaipur, who famously stood against the Mughals, you know, stood for the independence of the Rajputs against the Mughals. Warrior kingship, I would argue, is essentially characterized by the stress on the virtue of bravery and generosity, that the leader is essentially a, a, a great leader of his kin, his caste, his clansmen. There's a relational, a kinship relation there. He's, he's a king because of his great valor. He's a king because of his extreme generosity. This is not necessarily hereditary kingship. It's not divine kingship. I don't think, interestingly in India, there's much of that. My next model, oh, sorry, gone to the wrong one. My next model is of, uh, I would say, a circle of kings, the Samantha system, as it's sometimes called, the neighbourly system or the circle of kings. And what I've chosen to illustrate this is a very famous Mughal miniature from the Shah Jahan period, and it's a descendant of Rana Pratap. It's Amar Singh I being presented, making obeisance to Prince Kuram in, in 1614, to the later Shah Jahan. And you'll see that he's, he's barefoot. He's clearly in, in, a, in a position of obeisance here. And you might think that this is, is a sign of, of sort of complete loss of power and status. But it isn't. It isn't. Uh, if you think very, if, if you look more closely at the way late Mughal kingship works and how these relationships worked, it's actually a, a, a ritual of incorporation 
if Amar Singh makes his obeisance to, to a higher king, there's a big central king, and the little kings submit to him, but in return, the little kings receive protection, sometimes gifts, most importantly, a share in authority. And I think this is a very strong tradition in India, this idea that sovereignty is never concentrated in one place. It's often shared, it's dispersed, and there are rituals for showing that. My final form of kingship, uh, which I've chosen to illustrate with the famous Ashoka capital up here, I would call moral kingship or righteous kingship. Now, this is very interesting because this is a, a model of kingship in which the right to be a king is essentially based, again, it's an earned uh, phenomenon, it's, it's not necessarily inherited or divine, it's based on supreme, and this sounds very extreme, but it's based on supreme moral perfection. So the idea of supreme moral perfection or intellectual ability, preferably both run together, often seem as the same thing. The king in the moral or the righteous model is there to uphold universal ethical law. Kingship is not about martial prowess. It's not about patron-client relationships. It's about universal moral law, as I say, and it's found particularly in Buddhist and Jain texts in India, but it's not at all absent in Hindu traditions of kingship either. I'm not suggesting in any way that these forms of kingship are tied to religions. They're not. They're found in all forms of religion. But it is certainly very predominant in Jain, Jain ideas and Buddhist ideas. And here we have the Ashoka capital, Ashoka the great 3rd century BC Buddhist-influenced king of India, uh, who was famous as a lawgiver, who had edicts of moral law put across the, his territory. He, he, he's the first person to unite India. And on the capitals of the pillars in which his laws were, 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 were carved, you find this beautiful uh, sandstone capital. This is the one from Sarnath. The lions for the Ashoka dynasty. But more interestingly, the wheel, the wheel of Dhamma, Ashoka's wheel. And of course, on the head of the lions, it's gone now, but originally the head of the lions had a great wheel on them. And so the, the moral king, the virtuous king, the righteous king, was the turner of the wheel, the chakravartin, the turner of the wheel, the wheel of law. So these are, are the symbols I, I've chosen to illustrate kingship uh, in the past. And what I suppose I want to do is very briefly mount an argument to say that traces of this symbolism, and I think in some ways substance, continues in modern Indian politics. And I would also go further and say that you can see particular aspects, you can see these forms of kingship dominating at particular phases in India's history since independence. Um, here I've chosen Nehru. Nehru is in Borobdo, in, in, uh, near Yogyakarta, visiting a very famous Buddhist shrine here. Um, as all Indians here, many others of you will know, Nehru is strongly associated with ideas of moral kingship and a project of scientific rationality. The idea of India being developed by uh, almost a kind of monkly elite of wise bureaucrats, 
pursuing a universalizing moral and developmental project. And it is, of course, under Nehru, it's not just Nehru, but it's under Nehru, that the Ashoka capital is chosen as the emblem of India, and the Ashokan wheel uh, appears on the Indian flag. The 24-spoke navy blue wheel appears on the flag. So very explicit references are being made here uh, to that tradition of kingship. He is, of course, also deeply reliant on the moral authority of Gandhi. And, of course, one could spend forever talking about Gandhi and, and righteous uh, kingship. Gandhi, I would, the only thing I would observe about Gandhi is that Gandhi is from Gujarat. He's from Gujarat, which is a state absolutely suffused with Jain ideas. Uh, and I think there's a lot to be said about that. However, as again you're all aware, the Nehruvian project, the project of, of the universe, of the person turning the universal moral wheel uh, uh, th through the new vehicle of scientific rationality, by the 70s was really uh, running out of, of legitimacy. It was facing major political challenges. A number of those challenges were coming from regional caste uh, and linguistic uh, bases in which the leaderships of those movements, and in this case I've chosen the famous uh, film star N.T. Rama Rao, uh, who is, is here playing the great bowman of the Mahabharata, uh, he's playing Arjuna. Uh, these politicians, I would say, draw very strongly on ideas and conceptions of warrior leadership, of being related to their people, their populists, to the, quite an egalitarian relationship. They're the defenders of their people against an, over, an overweening centre and they're hugely generous to their people. Uh, and of course N.T. Ramara was very famous for his, his, his free distributions of food. A more recent example I would suggest would be Mulayam Singh Yadav who of course was a wrestler uh, in his pre-political life uh, and has drawn very, very freely uh, on, on uh, the traditions of Kshatriya Krishna identity among the Yadavs in, in North India in UP particularly. Disparages of this kind of politics, of course, call it Gunda politics, Gunda politics. However, I think that what I believe, I mean, I'm sure people will disagree with me about this, but I think that since the late 90s, uh, uh, certainly in the noughties, what we've begin, begun to see, really, is the re-emergence of the notion of the circle of kings, the idea of, of, of power in India being shared, okay, being spread from the centre. Now, I've chosen this picture of, of another great, the, the, the uncrowned king of Bihar, who is no more, of course, uh, I mean, he's still alive, but he's not the king of Bihar anymore. Uh, he, he here is seen, uh, you know, in a kind of modern ritual, a kind of modern equivalent of, of that mogul ritual I showed you. Clearly, it's not as obeisant, but, but really, I think it's trying to express the same kind of thing. So, just to wind up then... Um, I'm not suggesting in any way that one of these uh, modes of kingship is more uh, suitable for India or, or, more, or more credible or, or more admirable than any other. And any historian of India, of course, knows that nothing ever stands still there. However, I think that it's clear, really, that although there are great advantages with the, the, the re-emergence of the circle of kings, it brings stability, incorporation of new groups, power sharing within a federal system. It's a form of vernacularizing federalism, if you like. 
There are problems with it. It is associated with endless deal-making. It often is not associated with any overarching ideal or principle, whether it be Nehruvian moral leadership or or no-holds-barred free market. And for that reason, it has difficulty generating long-term broad support and commitment. And a close observer of the Indian scene will see a new phase of warrior politics emerging. We've heard the Naxals mentioned already. So I realise I've crammed an awful lot of history into a very short amount of time. Uh, My colleagues will be wincing at my simplifications, but I hope I have at least suggested some ways in which the humanities and historical research, of of which Oxford can be so proud, provides a very different and valuable perspective on contemporary problems. Thank you.